Good morning, everybody. So thankful that you're here with us this morning. We have a chance to be in prayer together, be in the Word together, be in worship together. I want to just uh, take a few minutes and pray like we always do at the beginning of service. I want to remind you that we uh, also have a prayer time on Sunday nights. Uh, President Trump asked that today would be a day of prayer. Uh, And so we're certainly going to want to honor that anytime uh, the government is asking you to pray. You want to jump all over that opportunity, right? (laughs) So uh, obviously we pray uh, throughout the service at different times. But if you want to be a part of that, we'll have our normal prayer time tonight at 6 o'clock up in the Annex building, up in the Youth Center, whatever we're calling it now. Um, But uh, anyway, you're welcome to join us for that. Uh, But let's go ahead. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Then I'll tell you a little bit more about what's going on today. And then we'll get into the book of Revelation. Well, Heavenly Father, so thankful uh, to be a part of the body of Christ, so thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, and uh, the work that He did to reconcile us in relationship to you, Father, that He was uh, so faithful and so loving, and even obedient to you, Lord, uh, that He was willing to surrender His life uh, so that I can be forgiven of my sins, so that each of us here can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Lord, I'm thankful for the various ministries that uh, we get to be a part of uh, that are invested in this. I think of uh, just the reality that there are churches all over the country uh, that are are meeting at different times, but today in particular, whether they're meeting online or in person, uh, Father, uh, we're part of that group of people who is bringing the gospel message to the world. This morning, I would pray for uh, Yellowstone Baptist Church, Lord. I understand that they're in the process of looking for a new pastor, and uh, Lord, I would pray for that process. Uh, It's been uh, mine and some other pastors here in towns. um, Great privilege to meet every Tuesday to pray uh, for the churches. And we pray specifically time and time again uh, that you would bring Bible-believing pastors who love you and who will love their congregations, that there would be these evangelical pastors growing. And we've seen you answer those prayers over and over and over again. I pray the same thing for Yellowstone Baptist this morning, Lord, that you'd be bringing somebody uh, to that church who just absolutely loves your word, loves to teach your word, uh, who lives out their faith, who's going to love the people of that church. Uh, Father, I also thank you for Life Choice Pregnancy Care Center, and uh, the investment we've been able to make in them is important, uh, not just because it saves lives, which I truly believe it does, it's saving lives, uh, but beyond that, Lord, uh, the number of souls that come to Christ. I heard again a report this last week of, of more coming to Christ through their ministry. It's so exciting to me uh, to know that they're saving not just souls but lives. Lord, I pray that you would bless them for their work, their ministry, that they would have the financial support that they need, that they would have the uh, administrative and servants that they need there as well, support uh, the people to come alongside and make that ministry continue on. Lord, I pray also for our church. I think of our uh, 20 and 30-somethings women's ministry that Carrie Pomelo runs. Uh, Just a great chance for uh, young gals to get a little mentorship and a little bit of friendship, uh, have opportunity to share life together uh, in that group. Lord, we pray this morning for our services that your word would speak to us. I know that every time your word goes out, it accomplishes something. And I'm praying that that would be the case today. So, Lord, we thank you. We love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 7. Hopefully you have a Bible with you this morning. You can turn to Revelation chapter 7. If not, we've got some Bibles at the back of the sanctuary there. Looks like uh, Mark is single-handing it as a deacon today, so you're, you're welcome to raise your hand in the air if you want somebody to bring a touched Bible to you, a communal, communal touched Bible. So not seeing a lot of hands on that offer. 
All right, so we're in the book of Revelation. We've been kind of following this book through as best we can, uh, trying very hard to not get out of hand uh, in our interpretation, try to be as clear as we can make from here and not guesstimate too many things, let the scripture speak for itself. Uh, And so where we find ourselves is uh, at the end of chapter 6, it was the introduction uh, of the great day of their wrath. The great day of their wrath has come. And then it asks this question, who is able to stand? This was following the sixth seal being broken by Jesus, the Lamb, up in heaven. Uh, We saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse last week, and then we saw this response from the martyrs in heaven. We saw the response on earth where people were saying, hide us from the wrath of God. And so we have all of that kind of going on. Chapter 7 begins uh, what's really kind of an interlude or a parenthetical thought that seems to be the answer to the question at the end of chapter 6. That question, who is able to stand in the day of God's wrath? Who's able to stand on that day? Chapter 7 begins to answer that question. Uh, And for me, and hopefully for you guys, it's it's a surprising um, chapter of encouragement in the midst of all of these horrible things happening uh, through the pulling of the seals, whether it's a fourth of the earth or conquering and war and famine and destruction, uh, wild beasts eating people. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But then there's this pause to remind us that there are those who will stand in the midst of the great tribulation of Jesus Christ. So we'll see who those people are. Uh, I do want to give you a chronological reminder. Uh, It is my sincere belief that the church us, if we're alive at this time in history, we're actually raptured at the beginning of chapter 4, that we were brought up into heaven. But there will be those during the time of the great tribulation who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Some of them, just because they heard about all this stuff at church, they didn't believe a word of it, then it happened, suddenly Jesus is real to them, right? Many of them are going to come to Christ because at the uh, end there of chapter 6, when that sixth, when the sixth seal was opened, it says the sky parted and you get the impression that they can actually see into heaven and see God and the Lamb. And that's when they begin to hide themselves. Again, if I can physically see God in heaven, if I can physically see the slain Lamb, Jesus Christ, suddenly I believe. I think... Uh, One of the greatest things about the great tribulation that we often forget as God is pouring out his wrath on the earth, in the midst of that, his grace is still available to those who are willing to believe. Uh, One of the greatest things for me is that there will be a multitude seemingly of people who come to faith in Jesus Christ during the last seven years of planet earth. Uh, Because even in God's wrath, he still is always offering his grace and his mercy. So let's look at some of these things Uh, that we see here. In verse 1 of chapter 7, it starts like this. It says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, to which everyone in Wyoming says, Amen. (laughs) So that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the, tw- to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So we have now these 
uh, four angels uh, that are uh, different locations around the earth. Uh, this is something that John is seeing happening. Uh, when it uses this phrase, after this, it's often telling us, here's a new vision, a new vision. So we'll see here in verse 1, after this, and then in verse 9, a new vision after these things. That's kind of that indicator. He's seeing something new from what he's seeing on earth. He's going to see these four angels standing, holding back the wind, uh, what we'll recognize both here, uh, where it tells us uh, in verse 2 that the four angels were granted to harm the earth. Also in chapter 9, verses 4 uh, 14 and 15, these four angels, angels are sent for the purpose of bringing destruction on earth. Uh, they're going to bring death to another one-third of mankind. So we saw a fourth of the people in chapter 6 die. So we're assuming uh, maybe there was 8 billion people on planet earth, although you take out all the raptured people, I have no idea. But let's just use the number 8 in chapter 6. A fourth of the people died of war, of pestilence, of wild beasts, all of these things, a fourth of the people on planet earth, maybe two billion people, that leaves six. Now in chapter nine, these angels are going to usher in another one third of mankind dying. If we're at six billion at that point, that means another two billion people have gone. But again, those numbers are uh, impossible to tell because we don't know how many were actually going to be raptured up uh, during that time. So there's no way for us to really know the exact numbers. The point is, it's a lot and stuff. Like, it's a lot of people. Like there's going to be a lot of destruction there on planet Earth. This is one of the reasons uh, I'm convinced none of this is looking back at things that have already happened in history. Nothing like this has ever happened. There are so many people who see these things existing already in history. No. There's horrible famine all over the Earth right now. There's horrible disease. There's death. There's war. All those things are happening, but not to this extent. This is beyond any of that. But anyway, these four angels have been told to put all of this on pause just for a minute. And now there's this question that needs to be answered. Who can stand in this day? So these four angels, it says, they're going to uh, wait. It's verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So those who weren't sealed before, but some who will be sealed after that. They weren't sealed before, they will be sealed after the events of the first six seals in chapter 6. Again, there's a chronological thing that helps us interpret why we believe things are what they are. So I'm believing that these things are after the day of wrath, starting, there's this pause, and there's going to be this somewhat great moment of salvation for a large group of people that will kind of continue throughout the time of the revelation. So uh, the idea that they would be bondservants of God who would be sealed on their foreheads, uh, this is not new language to scripture. A bondservant in scripture uh, is used all throughout the scripture to describe Christians. In the Old Testament law, uh, there was a type of slavery, of servitude, uh, that you could be in that was a seven-year period to pay off debts. At the end of that seven years, you're free, but a bond servant is one who came to the end of their seven years, and they were saying, wait a second, slavery has been better to me than non-slavery, so they make the choice to continue to serve as a slave. And so there's this process where they pierce their ear with an owl, and, and, and anyway, pierce their ear, and it's signifying that they've chosen to be a servant, a bond servant. They've made that decision themselves. That's the same picture it gives of us as believers, that we have made the choice to be servants of God. That's the picture. 
And then it says that they are sealed. It tells us here uh, on their foreheads. Uh, we can kind of gather some different things throughout Scripture. Uh, in the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 9, it describes uh, a remnant within the nation of Israel that's not going to have to go through some punishment there. And it specifically says that they were sealed. And the reason they were sealed is because they hated the abominations of their people. Uh, in other words, they were siding with God when it came to sin. They were on God's side. Uh, we see that same language picked up in the rest of the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it describes uh, those who are sealed, that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. More express, expressly communicated in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 4, uh, that this is the seal of our salvation, the Holy Spirit of God. And so we believe as a Christian that the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and the Holy Spirit in you is your seal. That seal has a visual implication in the end times. Uh, we're told that that seal is the name of the Father and the Lamb on your forehead. And, and this always gives me uh, the image, and maybe for nobody else, but of the, the movie Toy Story, where Andy has the little cowboy guy, whatever his name is, Woody, there you go, um, Tom Hanks. Anyway, he's got Tom Hanks. And if you look on the bottom of his foot, it says, Andy, he's written his name because this belongs to me in the same way for us as believers, the name of God, the seal, the Holy Spirit, all of this is God's way of signifying this one, you belong to God. It's kind of this great image. These are the ones that I believe are going to be able to stand. So we're going to get a further description of what those ones are or who they are, what they're like uh, here in the next couple of verses, really throughout the rest of the chapter. Uh, we're going to see group number one of two groups that's going to be described to us, starting in verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of uh, Ishkar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And so the first group that it's going to describe as being sealed here, I believe a group that will be saved, uh, I believe there will be a large number of Jews who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during this time. Part of that is because of their understanding of Old Testament prophecies. When they start to see the events of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, of Zechariah, of Joel, when they start to see these events unfolding on planet earth, they're beginning to begin to understand and believe. And then when the sky is opened in chapter 6 and they see into the throne room of heaven, they see God the Father and the Lamb who is Jesus Christ, they will recognize who He is. I believe that's going to be a no-brainer for many Jews. The number here, I believe, is intended to be symbolic. Uh, I, I, I just believe that just... That consistent nature, the idea of 12 has kind of this symbolic thing. So we have the 12 tribes with 12,000. That multiplies out to 144,000. I don't think there's going to be exactly 144,000 Jews saved. Uh, I think that's intended to tell us the perfect number of Jews are going to be saved. 
however many that is, it's going to be the perfect number. It's going to be the complete number of those that will be saved during that time will be saved. And so within the nation of Israel, which is important, by the way, scripturally, you see all throughout history, God has always saved a remnant from the nation of Israel. It didn't matter what was happening. Uh, we covered this ex- extensively in the book of Isaiah, a few, uh, maybe a year or so ago when I was teaching through the book of Isaiah. Uh, but this idea that God has always kept from the nation of Israel a remnant of people who are his. It's always been his goal. It's always been his plan. It's always been his purpose. We also see from the nation of Israel this, this picture, this idea uh, of people being brought out of the destruction of God. If you think about Noah and the ark, brought out of the destruction coming on planet Earth. Uh, if you think about Lot coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah, there was this group that was saved out of the terrible time that was going on uh, there on Earth. You can think about um, uh, Rahab, the harlot. You can think about these uh, different ones uh, that they're pulled out of these terrible destructions that are being brought to planet Earth, that they're the ones that are going to be kind of brought through this. This is a consistent pattern and theme that God has always had, that he's going to save from the nation of Israel a group of people, a large group of people. Now, let's talk about some of the weirdness that comes with this. There are a, quite a few people that have strange interpretations, what I'm calling strange interpretations for these passages. Uh, I'll start with within the Christian community. Uh, there are quite a few people that believe the 144,000 actually represent the church somehow. Um, I cannot get there. I, I just can't see how you can logically come to that conclusion uh, I've, I've always tried to believe that the Scripture means exactly what the Scripture says. And so when the Scripture says 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, I have no choice but to believe that these people are from the 12 tribes of Israel. The connection for some people is that they believe the nation of Israel was replaced by the church in the New Testament. Now, they believe in this idea of this replacement that happened where there no longer is an Israel in God's eyes. There's only a spiritual Israel that is the church. The danger there, I think, is the rejection of some of the common teachings of the New Testament. For instance, in the book of Romans, it describes not that the Jews were forgotten, but the Jews, that God has a plan for them. And he says, the church, we're actually just grafted in. We're not replacing, we're being brought into the things of Israel. So there is no, in my opinion, rejection of the nation of Israel by God. There is this continual restoration. restoration and this continual remnant within the people of Israel. So some of the other weird things that you're going to hear out there, I'll just call them weird so I'm the one that gets in trouble. If you say it out loud in public, that's not weird, then you can say, well, my pastor said it is. He's the bad guy. But (laughs) Jehovah's Witnesses, weird. I'm sorry. They believe that they are the 144,000, but I want you to take this to its extent. They believe that there are only 144,000 saved. Yet their church is bigger than that. So what they're believing is that many of them exist just for the purpose of getting the 144,000 to eternal life. That doesn't come from Scripture. The Mormon church believes in the 144,000, the priesthood. I had a friend in high school who was one of the 144,000. I don't know what to do with that, but it certainly doesn't seem to be coming from the Scripture. These are of the tribe of Israel. Uh, They're not alone in this. The Moonies have the 144,000. They believe that there is a group within their leadership that fulfills this. Uh, Islam believes a certain version of this where it's the 144,000 prophets of Islam. 
uh, within the New Age movement. You see this coming up as well, that people are taking these things. But for me, this is a common practice of Satan. He wants to distract from the truth wherever he can. And so he'll take things that have a connection to the Scripture. He'll turn them into something else and tell us that he got it from the Scripture. And then we hear it and you're like, well, 144,000, it says right there, it must be true. We have to be a little bit more careful than that. We have to let the Scriptures define for themselves what is scriptural. That's the way we work through these things. Let the Scriptures define for themselves the things that are there. This clearly, from this passage, it's telling us that these were from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's it. That's who it is. It's just what the Scripture says here. But I believe that this 144,000 who are sealed is going to be a remnant of the nation of Israel. I think it's a, a symbolic number there because that number is, again, symbolic in so many other places in Scripture. But a group of Jewish people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the end times, to which I say, God is amazing. He's just absolutely amazing. Because even as he's pouring out his wrath on the earth, he still wants to save. He still wants to see people avoid that wrath, avoid potential hell, avoid the broken relationship with him for all eternity. He still wants people to be saved, even in the midst of the chaos that's going to be on planet earth at that time, which is important for me because it reminds me that God wants people to come into his kingdom, even in the midst of the chaos that is happening in our world today. That the gospel has always been proclaimed throughout the world, regardless of what's going on on planet earth. There's nothing that has or ever will happen on this earth that distracts from God's plan of salvation. And it'll be like that right up until the day where the earth is completely gone. God's always, always, always desiring to see people saved. It's his desire that all would be saved and that none would go to destruction. And because that's his desire, he's consistently offering that. And I actually happen to have a personal belief. This is not something I'm saying is 100% scriptural, uh, but it seems to have a connection. My personal belief is this. I think times of tribulation are sometimes by God intended to be evangelistic. That when people now have to think about this idea of death, all of a sudden they do turn to God. And their attention becomes off of the things of the world and begins to focus on the things of heaven, the things of God. They want to know what eternity is like. They want to know what happens next. And so you see all throughout the world, wherever the church is persecuted, the church grows. Because these times of persecution, these times of wrath, you might even say, draw people to God because they need hope. And he provides to them hope in the plan of salvation. Well, the 144,000 is the first group. There's another group here that we're going to look at. Uh, we'll see them in verse 9. After these things, that's again an indication that we're having another vision now. The first vision was the, of the 144,000. The next vision now is going to be a different group of people. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Oops, uh, we got lost there. I looked down 
and now I can't figure out where I was. Standing, let's say, we'll just pick it up in verse 10. They cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. So now there is this new group. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude. Uh, this particular great multitude is from every tribe. Uh, I'm sorry, from every nation, a great multitude from every nation standing before the lamb and before the throne. So now we have this next group, this huge multitude of people. Now, the question might be asked, how do we know that these people are saved? Well, they're in heaven wearing white robes. Does that sound familiar? The overcomers in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Those who overcome, I will give to them. One of the things promised was a white robe and that they'll be able to stand before the throne of our God. So here we have this group now. The other thing that I think this connects to is Revelation chapter 6 Verse 11, if you recall, when the fifth seal was opened, it shows a group of martyrs in heaven. And they're saying, how long before you bring justice to the earth? And God says back to them, you're going to have to wait just a little bit because there are more to be killed, it tells us in verse 11. And then that will be completed soon. I think this group is the more to be killed I think this group is the next group of those saved. I think this is a group of people who are going to come through uh, this terrible time of, trans, of, of uh, tribulation here on the earth. Uh, interesting, the picture, though, uh, as they're before the throne, they have their white robes on, and they've got palm branches that they're waving. This would uh, spark visions of, of common things to a Jewish person. Uh, they would think in the book of Leviticus of the Feast of Booths. That there is this connection to this of the waving of the branches. And so there's the, the bringing in of the uh, fruits, and then there's the waving of the branches, and then they set up these booths. Uh, they would make a connection. Leviticus 23.40, if you want to look into that. Uh, but for Christians, we make a different connection. We think of the Gospel of John. We think of Palm Sunday. Just a few weeks from now, we're thinking of Palm Sunday. That's the thing that comes to our mind when Jesus, the triumphal entry, when he comes into Jerusalem before he's to be crucified, and there's this kind of this great moment of worship breaks out. Hosanna, glory to God in the high, right? There's this great moment of worship as they begin waving these branches and laying their coats down before him as he rides in on this colt of a donkey. So here comes Jesus coming into Jerusalem and everybody's waving branches and they're crying out, save now. And now in heaven, around the throne, with their robes and their branches, instead of saying, save now, salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And now we see as they're worshiping uh, the, the rest of the creation in heaven at this point, the angels around the throne, the elders, which I believe represents the church, the four living creatures, which are these creepy uh, 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 angel guys around the throne that have some responsibilities in the end times. All of them fall on their faces before the throne and worship God. And I know we've talked about this before, but there's that great connection in Scripture of submitting yourself, lowering yourself before God 
That's a great picture of worship. Worship in many ways is submitting yourself to God. But there's this great picture as then now all again, uh, the angels begin to lower themselves before God. We get another piece of the soundtrack of heaven and they all are saying together, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. So again, this worship service in heaven. Now, uh, there's going to be further explanation here in a minute as to who these people are. Uh, but what's difficult here to discern is how this fits within the timeline. It seems like this is happening at the exact same time in heaven. However, as we read the context going further, we'll find out that John seems to actually be getting a glimpse a little bit further down in the future here. And so he's just when it says after these things, there's a new vision this vision seems to be a future vision beyond what he's already seeing uh, with the remnant of Israel there on earth. So let's read through that and see if we can connect those dots. Then one of the, uh, one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And so the question is asked by one of the elders around the throne, turns to John, who we've got to remember He's getting this amazing view of the future events. Like, this is pretty impressive what John gets to see. He writes down for us, it's cool, but he's seeing all of this, right? This elder turns to him and John, and he says to John, he's like, well, who are these people in the robes? John, perfect answer. Oh, you know this one, right? Like, that's the perfect answer. Oh, this is so easy, even you can get it. <laughs> like, he just kind of sets it up here. Uh, but the question is, uh, who are these and where have they come from? And so the answer then is given to us. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It seems to be very clear who these are. These are people who came to salvation during the time of the great tribulation. They came out of the tribulation. They didn't come out before the tribulation they came during the tribulation. They came out of it. Uh, so in other words, if I were to come out of a box, I had to actually be in the box first. And if I'm going to come out of the tribulation time, this has to be a group of people who will get saved during the tribulation. And the number we're told is a multitude, and it's from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. So before it was just those of the nation of Israel, 144,000, but now it's telling us during this time of tribulation, there's going to be a multitude of people from the entire planet who are come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, the tribulation, freaky, scary stuff, but the grace of God, the gospel message, still powerful and important throughout the entire time of the tribulation. God still has a plan for people's salvation. This, for me, brings great comfort. As I try to share the gospel with friends and family and they don't really respond the way I would expect them to, 
Like, obviously, if I tell them something, it must be true. Why aren't they all just jumping for joy? Because Pastor Sean said something, right? Like, I just have this anticipation that all my friends and family are going to get saved. Uh, I truly believe that even if they live into the time of tribulation, they'll still have another opportunity, and it's going to be so much more obvious than it is now. God just continually gives us this picture of hope for the future. It's powerful for me to see how God is continuing to reach out for salvation uh, during these difficult times here uh, in the book of Revelation. But again, it reminds me that that's what God does now, that during these times of tribulation, there might be people who are more willing to hear the gospel. Keep that in mind. During difficult times on planet Earth, there might be people who are more willing to hear the gospel. And this is why we pray with the sick and visit those in the hospitals and we have ministries to the prisons. This is why the church is the one that often shows up first to disasters because they bring with them not just needed supplies, but they bring with them the good news concerning Jesus Christ. It's just been a historic reality. Over and over, the church runs into tribulation to give people a picture of eternal hope in Jesus Christ. So it describes them as having coming out of the tribulation, but it also says they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, which is not how washing normally works, right? Like if you take something white and you stick it in something red, it usually comes out red. But in this case, it says that that blood is washing the robes white. And it's intended for us to be a picture of our own salvation, that it was the blood of the Lamb, it was the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our sins. Also might connect slightly uh, to some of the Old Testament uh, laws where it talks about the various sacrifices and the things they would do with people like with leprosy and things like that, but just kind of these similar pictures all throughout Scripture. Uh, but the idea is it was the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb who paid the prices for our sins, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This group of people washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb, and for that reason, they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne spreads his tabernacle or his tent over them, which he'll describe in a minute, but generally it's just saying that, he's, that they're now under his protection in heaven. Uh, again, I think just a, a powerful vision of the saving work. Now, for some of us, when we hear this phrase, um, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, it might remind us of our, our earlier hymn years, right? When we sang a lot of hymns, somebody recognize that from anything? Anyone? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Right? <laughs> Yay for the blood of the Lamb. <clears throat> like these songs have meaning. We sing songs. We like the melody. We like different things. But let's not forget the words. They're connecting us to something in Scripture. This is a reminder that each one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ, has been cleansed of our sins 
by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is intended to be evangelistic. It's a reminder for us that God is always working to save the lost, always. So we finish it up here with a beautiful picture of heaven in verse 16. It described God as spreading his tabernacle or his tent over them. Uh, it's a description of him offering his, protect, his protection. Uh, verse 16, they will hunger no longer nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of living water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This promise for them, I believe it's also a promise for all believers, this is a description of what, he, of what awaits us in eternity. This great little picture of heaven, this little snippet here. Uh, I uh, was at, uh, yesterday I was at my um, aunt's funeral. And of course, you know, all this coronavirus stuff going on. So they actually closed it to people that weren't family. So all that could come to this was just the family. Uh, but as they're going through things, I'm studying this passage out. And so all I'm thinking about is Revelation chapter 7, and I'm seeing all of this stuff come to life as I'm considering eternity in heaven. Like as they're talking about, as they're discussing it from the pulpit, talking about eternal life in heaven, I'm thinking about what that's like. And of course, this verse comes to my mind. God offers you his protection eternally in heaven, and it describes it, hunger no longer. I actually think of that one beyond food, by the way. Uh, I haven't been hungry in a long time, I'll be honest with you. I um, eat beyond any, any necessary need. Um, I haven't been hungry in a long time. But I think there are things that we do hunger for that we'll find fulfilled in God, for intimacy, for love, for purpose and meaning. We hunger for those things, for relationships. We hunger for those things, for justice and restoration. We hunger for those things. But I believe eternally, there is no more hunger because there is no more need we're provided for. There's no more thirst. I love that one as well. It, it connects actually to Revelation 21. You'll see several of these things, Will, but Revelation 21, 4 through to 6 is kind of a, a similar description of what heaven will be like, uh, but you get the same idea in verse 6 there it says, uh, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without no cost, which you see then described in chapter 22. Uh, but this idea of this living water that we receive from Jesus Christ, this idea that we'll never thirst again. Again, there's no want. Uh, the idea that the sun will beat down on them no more. There'd be no more heat, which in the winter sounds miserable, right? But just this general idea, if you can ever think about those times when you've been so overwhelmed with heat, just, it just, if you, they describe the sun like that sometimes as beating down on you. But again, it's the removal of those things. And then I just think just this beautiful picture of the lamb himself being our shepherd, Reminds us of the 23rd Psalm. 
The Lord is our shepherd. So it has just kind of this, and again, what does that follow with? There'll be no want. There's just no need. It's all fulfilled in him. All of our needs, all of our hungers, all of our wants fulfilled in him. Shepherded by Jesus Christ now at a distance, but then personally. The lamb becomes the shepherd. And we are now shepherded by him. And then we see that God himself wipes every tear from their eyes. Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then in Revelation 21 again, verse 4, you see this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, mourning, crying, pain. The first things have passed away. Here we are in the middle of the wrath of God, being reminded of the gospel that saves and the result of that salvation. If you can imagine that moment where God wipes away every tear, how powerful is that moment going to be? Of course, the tears are wiped away partially because there's nothing to cry about anymore. Unless you're one of those people that cries for good things. That's a new thing that I learned about when I had children. These things are wiped away by God the Father. It connects also to me to a couple of things. Uh, several places in the Psalms, it reminds us uh, that God collects our tears in a bottle in Psalm 56, 8. It's just this idea that he, he, He's keeping track. He knows every tear that you've cried. And a day of comfort is coming. I joke around quite a bit that I don't cry, I leak awesome. Well, he knows every bit of awesome that I've ever leaked, okay? He knows it. Now think through your life, the things you've cried over, the things you've wept for. Every one of those tears, God keeps track of. He's promising you at the end of it all a time of comfort from all that you mourn from. The gospel message important yesterday, today, and forever. There is no time in history that it won't be valuable and important. God is always calling people to himself. And so I'm reminded that we should do that as well. The calling of Jesus Christ, we find in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God that you've deserved because of your sin. Saved how? He washed you, cleansed you of all of that sin so that you can stand before God and worship him who is worthy so that he can be your shepherd and he can wipe away every tear and he can fulfill every one of your needs. That's the God we worship. Confess, believe, be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for today. I'm thankful for your word. I admit fully that I have been dreading the book of Revelation because there is so much uh, just death and destruction in here, God. Lord, I thank you that there are these glimpses of glory. 
these glimpses of heaven. Father, I thank you for these glimpses of your grace and these reminders of the gospel. I thank you that we're not done with those in chapter 7, that there's more to come. The gospel will again be proclaimed in this book. Father, my prayer today for each one who heard this message, if there's anybody who has yet to confess your son Jesus Christ as Lord, that today would be the day that they would submit themselves to him. They would choose from this day forward, they would live life for him, according to him. They would do the things he's asked them to do. Lord, I pray also for the people of our our world, that uh, each one is reacting differently to uh, this new pandemic, this new virus that's around us, Lord. Each one has their own response. Uh, Lord, I pray that all of us, regardless of our response, would be turning to you for comfort. Father, I pray even as we've gathered here today, it was a comfort to some, the ability to have some semblance of normal. Father, for those who stayed home and were able to watch online, I'm, I'm thankful that they were still have the, still have the opportunity to worship. Lord, for those who are sick, we pray for healing. Father, for those who have died, we pray for the comfort of their families. But in all things, Lord, we, we worship you in good times and bad, because you are the God who is worthy. And we thank you. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.